This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. A few months ago, there was a video that went viral. Um, and the video was about two kids. I think they were twins. If they weren't twins, they were close enough in age that they appeared to be twins. Um, and here's how the, the video ran. They're, they were in a room by themselves. Uh, the parents weren't there, and they were just being kids. They were playing around, and they decided they would climb up on this big chest. Apparently, the chest uh, was empty, so the drawers could be opened, and they pulled those out, and it looked like they were using them as stairs and maybe places to live in. Anyway, they were climbing up on this chest, and all of a sudden, it tipped over. I mean, big chest. And one of the little boys was crushed underneath the chest, and he couldn't get out. And his little brother was trying to figure out a way to free him. And he did what many of us would do to try to just pick it up. This kid couldn't have been more than three years old. Finally, he figured out a way to raise it just enough so his little brother literally rolled out from under this huge chest. The little kid just comes rolling out, and the other brother drops the chest. And the little guy who rolled out, he just hopped up, and they started playing like nothing happened. It's like... You know, if that had been one of us, it had been crushed ribs, we would have been hollering and carrying on. Nope, it was fine, and off they went. Well, this was all one of those, um, what do they call those things, parent cams or something, you know, babysitters that uh, look at your kid all the time to make sure where he is. And it was all captured on this baby cam thing. And so they put it on the internet, and people were commenting on it. You know, of course, like me, the first comment, but man, that's a, that's a heroic little dude there. You know, he saved his brother and all this kind of stuff. Very quickly, it went south. They started criticizing the parents. Why did you have those kids in that room all by themselves? 
Why did you let them climb up on the chest of drawers? Why were the chest of drawers empty so they could have an accident? I mean, it just went viral, right? They were all over these parents. The moral of the story, don't post any videos on YouTube, okay, period. <laughs> They'll be misinterpreted. You have to defend yourself. So when you think of the story we just read, honestly, don't you have those kind of questions? I mean, the commentators did ever since the story came out. I think probably, as a matter of fact, Mary's the one who told the story to Luke. That'd be likely because she was still around after Jesus had gone to be with the Father. And she tells the story straight up. So the next part of my sermon is in defense of Joseph and Mary, okay? They were good parents. Hang with me. It wasn't that big a deal. So here's the way it rolls. Back then, when you took a trip, let's say as far away as Chicago, you couldn't get on a train, you couldn't be in a car. In other words, there weren't four or five or six or eight of you together, and you could count noses and figure out if everybody was all on board. When you traveled back then, especially for one of these journeys called pilgrimages to Jerusalem, you traveled in a huge company of people. It was a safety issue, but it was also a community issue, right? So it's likely that Jesus and his parents were all together with maybe 50, maybe more people all together traveling to Jerusalem. And routinely, the women would travel together and the men would travel together. And the kids were everywhere in between, as kids will be. They speculate, according to the tradition, it seems reasonable, that if the child was obviously nursing, or perhaps even very young, the child would stay with the women because the mother was more attentive and taking care. And as the kid, you remember this, right? As a kid got to be about 11 or 12, it's like, if I have an option to be back with the guys, I'm going back there. It's likely that by the time the kid was 10, 11, and 12, he wanted to be with the men folk at the back, so he would go there. But there's this kind of in-between thing, right? The kid's a tweener. I mean, he's not a child, he's not an adult, he's not a teenager yet. He, he could be either place. So he could shift back and forth because he's a little bit independent, but he needs safety. And so, when they're on their journey back from Jerusalem to their hometown, Mary probably thinks he's with Joseph. Joseph thinks he's with Mary. I mean, it's reasonable, right? Not only is it just reasonable because that's the way they traveled, but it's also reasonable for this reason. If you're a teacher or a parent, you know that there's certain among your brood, right, who are a little bit more irresponsible than others. If somebody's going to get lost, his name is Charlie, right? Charlie never shows up on time. He's always lagging behind. You know where Charlie has got to be. So you're constantly worried about Charlie. Where's Charlie? Make sure Charlie's with us, right? Okay. Susie, you don't have to worry about her. She's a list person. She's got it all together. She's very responsible. She's going to be on time, and she will always be with the group. My suggestion, just a suggestion, Jesus was a Susie. Okay? He was a responsible child. Nobody ever worried that he would show up on time. Nobody expected he would wander off on his own. He never caused any problem. He was a good kid. So Mary expects, well, of course he's with Joseph. I, I don't understand those kind of people because I was always the one they were looking for, right? But there are people like that. They're very responsible. And I think Jesus was one of them. 
So they're leaving Jerusalem, and they're on their way back to their hometown, and they travel all day long. When the end of the day comes, they count noses, and somebody's missing, and it's Jesus. I mean, they're terror-struck at this point. They're a whole day's journey away. You don't just get in the car and drive back. You can't do that. They rise at dawn and start on foot another day's journey right back to where they started. Mary and Joseph arrive in Jerusalem, and it says after three days. I think that what that really means is one day up and traveling, another day back and traveling, and on the third day, maybe at the end of the day, they finally find Jesus. And he's in the temple talking to the teachers, the ones who were the experts on the law. That's where things get especially interesting, right? Now, first of all, Jesus is from a tiny little town called Nazareth. And like most Jewish boys, he would have been raised being taught by people who knew more than him about the law. But he was different in that regard. He was an especially bright student. He seemed to catch on to things that nobody else did. And I think the opportunity that Jesus had at 12 years old to be at the epicenter of Jewish theology, to be the play, at the place where the most learned teachers were, he was ecstatic. I get to be among the best and the brightest and ask them questions and give them answers. And he was so immersed in this activity that he never left the temple. And everybody off while on the caravan left him behind. When they found him, they were amazed. Well, first, wow, we finally found him. Second, he was asking and answering questions with these rabbis. And the rabbis were amazed because this kid was like a child prodigy. He was over the top. Where did this kid come from is probably the language they used from him. How is he so bright? He's too young to know these things. But he was asking amazing questions and giving remarkable answers. I like to imagine that when Mary and Joseph saw him, they didn't just immediately rush right to him. They just kind of stood back and said, Whew, there he is. Let's get our breath. And they watched the interaction. And then, well, then all motherhood broke loose. And Mary walks up to Joseph and says, what in the world were you thinking? Your father and I were worried sick. What makes you think you could just leave the whole group? Can you imagine what Mary's doing at this point? I, well, maybe your mother didn't do that, but my mother would have. She would have said, son, what is the matter with you? So Mary's going off and saying, we're anxious about this whole thing. Why did you do this to, to us? And, and I wonder, my wife and I were talking about this text earlier, and she said, I wonder if Jesus said to himself, do you really want to know the answer to that? Because you won't understand it anyway. <laughs> and I think that's kind of true. Because his response was, well, what's the big deal? Well, first of all, that's all I would have gotten out of my mouth before my mother launched into another lecture. But anyway, he says to his mother, why are you worried? Why, why? Don't you know i got to be here? i got to be here at my father's house, or as an older translation says, about my father's business? Either way, it's pretty much the same thing. i got to be studying things concerning my father. I got to be with my father. I got to be in his house. Why were you worried? You know this is where I got to be. Well, they were puzzled. Um, 
the way the text puts it is they, especially Mary, pondered these things in her heart. Went away thinking, hmm, here's another one. This kid is way different, isn't he? That's the early life of Jesus, and it's about really the only story we have of his early life. Apart from the birth narratives, that's it. We fill in the gaps, and there's some apocryphal gospels that do fanciful things with the life of Jesus, but there doesn't seem to be any credibility to them. This one we know. Again, probably came from Mary. But there's something else about this story. It's not just a fun childhood story. It's actually a story that sets the stage for the rest of the life of Jesus. From day one, let's call this day one. From day one, he's about his father's business. He's in his father's house. He lives an absolutely God-centered life. It begins at his early ministry. And by the way, living an absolutely God-centered life for Jesus was no easier than it is for us. Don't make the assumption running ahead that since he was son of God, it wasn't a problem. The scripture helps us to understand that when they help us to see a picture. When Jesus' ministry is inaugurated, the first thing that happens is the Spirit. The Spirit takes him to the desert to be tempted by Satan. Here, let Satan beat you up while you're hungry for 40 days. Welcome to ministry, Jesus. No, it wasn't easy. It was hard from day one to live a God-centered life for Jesus. But he did it. In the rest of his ministry, you see the theme over and over again. I'm not about myself. This is not my agenda. I'm not speaking on behalf. I'm speaking on behalf of the Father. I and the Father are one. I can't do anything without the Father. Those themes just run through the entire life of Jesus. And they take him all the way to the end, don't they? When he's in the garden, Gethsemane, facing his own death, Death of a cruel crucifixion. He sweats great drops of blood. And he says, please. Please, God. May I put a few words in his mouth. I've lived a God-centered life here, Father. I've let everything about my life be defined by you. Can we at least avoid this one? Can we find another way? That's at the end of his life. Remember the beginning of his ministry? The temptation in the desert? It can all be reduced to that same theme. Everything about the temptation was Jesus saying, oh, though he didn't say it out loud, when Satan offered another way. Oh, you can have all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus, but you got to take a different route. His whole life was about this. And down near the end, he says, please, Just this once, Father, can we do it differently? Of course, the answer is no. And he walks to his death. Hmm. There's a lot that could be said, right, about this passage. But I want to focus on just one thing. The God-centered life. What about it? 
What's it look like? What's it involve? First point I want to make about the God-centered life as it relates to me is this. I'm not sure I want this. Yeah, I'm a Christ follower. You get that, right? I do this every Sunday. I believe that Jesus defines my every reality. I get that. I want to follow Jesus more than I want anything, but on any given day and any given moment, i got to be honest, I'm not sure I want this. See, I love Jesus, and I want him to be all for me, but I'm not sure I always want to be him. I struggle not just to have a God-centered life, but to want to have a God-centered life. You say, why, Bob? It's really simple, because I'm self-centered. And I get the feeling that as I speak to you, I'm looking into a mirror, and your problem's the same. Because we're full of sin and self-centeredness, do you really want this? Says God. And when you come to Christ for the first time, you're saying, yes, sign me up. You know, everything, everything about the Christian life is the complete opposite of the famous song that Frank Sinatra sings, I did it my way. I'm not dissing Frank, he's dead. Respect the bed. I kind of like the song, but it's really stupid for a Christian. Because that's not what it's supposed to be about. It's supposed to always be God's way. We're always supposed to be selfless. We're always supposed to be invisible. We're always supposed to be in the groove with God. And that's hard, friends. And on some days, I'm not sure I want it. Second thing about this God-centered life, it's impossible. Are you kidding me? Look, even if I wanted it, I couldn't attain it. And the proof is in the pudding. When I do want it, I don't attain it. I'm not talking about being a good moral person. That's hard enough. You can't do that either. Okay? But if you could, you still wouldn't be here. Why? Because like me, you're doing it for yourself. You want to be good and better than everybody else. You want to rise above the crowd. And that's not the God-centered life. That's why it's so impossible. That's why your best efforts always fall short. That's why you can't do it. Apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, he doesn't call us because we're perfect. Christ calls us and makes us perfect through his blood. So the first thing is, I'm not sure I want this. 
Um, second thing is it's impossible. But I remember the words of Jesus when... Um, well, I say the words of Jesus. It, it, it's not as though he spoke them in this narrative, but all the words of Scripture are the words of Jesus. When Mary encounters the angel... She hears the word of the Lord, which is in effect, remember John 1, the word made flesh, spoken by the word. The angel says to Mary, why, what? You, you said you've never known a man and you're pregnant? This is not possible? The angel in effect says, I get it. It's not. But with God, all things are possible. It is impossible. But with God, it's possible. There's a third thing about this God-centered life. It can only be done one step at a time. You may notice I didn't say one day at a time. Because you'll never do it even one day. To immerse himself. This God-centered life can be done only one step at a time. And you know what the first step of the first step is? The first step of the first step is actually to acknowledge that you can't do it. That's the first step. you got to say, this is impossible. Then maybe you're ready. You know what the second step is? you got to say, it's impossible, but my way is Falling apart. My way, define it however you want. My way is not working. Once you say, I get it, I can't do it. And then you say, my way is falling apart, I've got to have another way. Then, then maybe you're ready for the third part of the first step. The third part of the first step is to remember that the first step is simply a building block that allows you to take the next. That, that's the life of a disciple, my friend. It's taken the first step, and then the second, and then the third, and each of those steps continues to build a foundation of faith for you. You'll never be finished. You'll never be perfect. It will always be impossible, but you're building a foundation one step of faith at a time. So it can only be done one step at a time, and I've broken the first step down to three parts. <laughs> but here's what I have to say in conclusion. Um, and it, mark, mark your watches, will you? Um, it's 10 minutes before 12, and I'm wrapping up. In spite of, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Go ahead, yeah, especially the kids. Um, Okay, now I'm going to make this much longer. <laughs> All of that could sound really discouraging, right? And here's what I want to say. Don't be discouraged. Even though it's impossible. <laughs> Even though on any given moment you're not sure you really want it. It's, it's, it's not impossible. Be dis, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Remember the, uh, the book of Hebrews? Wonderful chapter, chapter 12. 
the author says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he just talked in chapter 11 about all the saints that have gone before. And he says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, I want you to run this race with patience. By the way, that great cloud of witnesses included some real scoundrels. I mean bad people. And he says, I want you to look at that great cloud of witnesses all around you and be encouraged to take the next step. I want you to run this race with patience. Now we look at that passage and we say, well, there you go. It's the examples of the saints from the past. But honestly, I don't think if you look at the whole of the book of Hebrews or the whole of the book, books of the New Testament, that's all it's about. It's about a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before you. They've already made it. They've already endured the faith. But it's also about a great cloud of witnesses right now around you. Don't be discouraged. You can't do it on your own. There's people around you. And God himself is with you. That's part of the great cloud of witnesses. Second thing I want to mention is this. You're going to blow it. And that's okay. It makes you normal. A song I don't think, Rob, I don't think we've ever sung the song. It might not be a very good congregational song, but it's a cool song. Michael Card sings it. It's about um, a fellow who was a, a farmer just trying to make his way during medieval days. And this farmer had a cart. And the cart, during the growing season, would have produce on it, and he would push this cart to the market. And every day he passed by a monastery. Now, we don't view monasteries this way. But to him, when he looked at that monastery, he thought peace, security, and everything you need. There was a wall around it. People functioned together as a unit, pleasing and looking to God. And you lacked nothing. You weren't rich, but you had everything you needed inside those walls. He would go past that monastery in any given time. He would stumble, he would fall, and he would lose some of the produce that he had to put back on the cart. And every time he did, he wondered what it would be like to live inside those walls. On one particular day, he was going past the monastery, sweating and stumbling, and he saw a monk outside the walls. And he stopped and he went up to him and he said, Sir, what's it like to live in there? To live inside those walls? And the monk looked at him and he said, I've seen you before. He said, inside here, it's just like it is outside there. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. The saints 
are just the sinners who fall down and get up. Be encouraged. You're normal. That's what confession is about. That's what the reality of grace is. You're going to fall down, but get up. You're a saint because you're a sinner who falls down and gets up. I'm going to end with um, not a point, but a picture. (coughs) Well, I know it's up there. You know, um, those of you who know me, I've I've run a lot of marathon, half marathon things. And um, I can almost feel this picture. Um, I can especially feel the guy in the middle. (laughs) The guy in the middle is um, retired. He he may be 80 years old. They didn't give his his age. But um, he's been running marathons and half marathons for a long time, and he wanted to continue to do it. Uh, after retirement to stay in shape. And this one, you can't see. It's the Rock and Roll Marathon in Arizona. I've run one of those Rock and Roll Marathons before. That's a fun thing to do because they got rock and roll music blaring all the way through the 13.1 miles. It's a great thing. They're on the Rock and Roll Marathon and uh, 60 yards before the end, he stumbled and fell. He was wearing glasses And the glasses just sliced open the top of his forehead as he hit the ground. He said, you know, I've been preparing for this for a long time. You just got to be ready, you know, to tuck and roll and get back up. And he said, so I tucked and I rolled. And before I could even get back up, there were two arms beside me. And they picked me up. And they helped me walk across the finish line. Uh, This photographer captured it real time. See the guy on the left? This dude was a spectator, right? He's got coffee in his hands. He hadn't been working. No sweat on him, okay? (laughs) This dude's just a good Samaritan. He jumped over the rope line to help the guy. The guy to his right, he had been running. And I think I know the guy to the right story. He had a time. He wanted to finish. He does this stuff. But he couldn't walk past that man. So he stopped. He helped him up and with the other, they walked him across the line. Here's the point, my friends. It might be impossible. On any given day, you might not want to do it. I get that. But you can. Why? Because there's a great cloud of witnesses surrounding you. There's brothers and sisters in Christ right here and other places who, if you allow them to, will take your hand and pick you up and walk with you until you can run. That's the body of Christ. You know what's invisible in this picture or your life? Jesus Christ himself, who is there lifting you up, empowering you when you can't walk, and actually helping you to run. Be encouraged, saints. You can have a God-centered life. It won't be perfect, but Jesus is with you. Let's pray.
you have been very gracious to us, Lord, to even call us. You could have just left us alone. But no, you called us and you gave us a, a challenge, a high calling to follow you. You told us that to be a Christ follower means to be a God-centered person. And you gave us the example and then you left. And I can't imagine what it was like for those disciples. You said, now what do we do? But by the power of the Spirit, you enabled them to walk as you walked. And you promised that the same Spirit who enabled them to walk as you walked would enable us. And you gave us not only the Spirit, but you gave us the body of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for both. Uh, We pray that especially today you will remind us of our high calling. And you will help us to be people who are not only determined to finish, but people who have eyes for those who are trying to finish. Help us, Lord, uh, not to be so introspective, but to look around us and to realize somebody is, is broken, is bloodied, and they've fallen down. Help us to step in, Lord, to encourage them, to lift them up, and may we all run the race and finish by God's grace. In your name we pray. Amen.